Isaiah 9 is our text today. One of my favorite carols was written by William Chatterton Dix in 1865. What child is this? It's a question that he deliberated upon as he pictured people walking in Jerusalem past this particular stable where a baby had been born and whose cries perhaps that they heard, wondering, who is this? What child is this? It's the debate of the ages for these past 2,000 years. Anyone who has ever heard the name Jesus has had to deal with this question, who is Jesus? What child is this? Our Muslim neighbors recognize Jesus. They will even accept that he was born of a virgin, but they do not accept that he was God in the flesh or that he was crucified or resurrected. Jews, of course, recognize Jesus as a a great prophet, a teacher, a religious reformer, but not God in the flesh and the Messiah who is to come into the world. Hindus recognize Jesus. They acknowledge him as one of the Krishni, that is, one who has reached perfect God consciousness. Buddhists say that Jesus was one who gained the highest level of enlightenment. Everybody must answer the question, what child is this? Who is this Jesus? If they have been confronted with this very special person in history who was born. The Word of God tells us. That's why we love the Scripture. We can identify the person of Jesus. Now, when Isaiah is doing his prophetic work, it's 700 years or so before Jesus the Christ child was born. He prophesies for a a number of years, some 60 years, he serves as a prophet announcing the message of God. In those 60 years, there are a number of kings that are on the throne for God's people, most of whom are wicked kings, including King Ahaz, the king that is on the throne when our text, when, when, uh, when our text is being announced uh, today. Ahaz, there's a lot of study we could do about the setting and what's going on, but let's suffice to say that Ahaz, as a wicked king, was called to trust in God. God knows what he's doing. And these were threatening times for King Ahaz, but he did not want to trust God. He wanted to trust himself, and so he, 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 he formed of wrong alliances with foreign nations, believing that in his own power, he took, could take care of the nation. God told him he was doing the wrong thing, that he needed to repent, and that if he would repent, God would make him great. But Ahaz refused to do that. <clears throat> Isaiah went to him, holding in his arms his own baby boy. And saying, you know, God wants to give you a sign. And Ahaz says, I don't really want a sign. In fact, I don't think I should ask for a sign and test God. He was sounding pious. The fact is, he didn't want to know that God was right. God had said there's going to be all kinds of destruction that comes on the nation. 
You're going to have a terrible future unless you repent. Isaiah held his baby and he said, before my child is weaned, you're going to start seeing things happen. He refused a sign. God said, I'm going to give you one anyway. And the sign he gives him was for the distant future. When, when after centuries, God would give a special sign, an indication that the remnant of people who would hold on to the God of Israel would see redemption. A great day is coming to the future. And that's what we have in chapter 9. The people walking in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have you have shattered the yoke and burdens them that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This grand and familiar text before us today helps us grasp the true identity of God's true son, Jesus Christ. What child is this? He is indeed God's gift to us, God's true son. Let me tell you about him. First of all, he is marvelous in how he came. Have you ever lost anything valuable? I've done it many times. A few years ago, I'm not sure I've told you about it. A few years ago, my wife lost the diamond setting in her engagement ring. Now, the guy who bought the ring was of little means at that time. And I want to assure you, the size of the diamond in the setting does not in any way suggest the limited love that he has for her. (laughs) But it was a grievous day when she looked down and saw that diamond was missing. Now, we scoured the car and the house and the couches and everywhere we looked. I had not long before that vacuumed the house, not the time when I stubbed my toe and lost my nail, (laughs) another time. And I remember taking out the the vacuum cleaner bag, and I went through all the dust and the hair and the unusual things that are found in vacuum cleaner bags to no avail. We went on to the the jeweler to, to price a new diamond for the setting, and he reminded us that something like that, a gem, needs to be protected. And about every six months, you need to take it in and let the jeweler examine the prongs because one little casual hit against a cabinet or a door can, can move a prong, and that gem is in danger of being lost. Now, what is, what is true of an object like that that is precious is also true, friends, of what we believe And we must be people who are well-grounded 
in what we believe and we guard because it is precious to us. Satan is a thief who comes in to rob and steal and destroy. The virgin birth of Jesus is such a belief that Satan loves to destroy. The virgin birth of Jesus has been attacked in many forms and many ways by many people for 2,000 years. To dismiss the virgin birth is to reject the very deity of Jesus, the accuracy of the Bible, and all other things we say we believe because of the Bible and what it teaches us. No issue is more crucial to the understanding of the identity of this true Son of God, Jesus, than the virgin birth. Larry King, for number of years interviewed all kinds of celebrities, actors and actresses and politicians and other people in the news. He was asked one time, if you could interview one person in history, who would it be? And he said, Jesus Christ. And the interviewer, now he's a Jew, and he was asked, well, what would you ask him if you were interviewing him? And he said, I would ask one question. Were you really born of a virgin. And he said, that, that would decide history for me. This non-believer understands the crucial nature of the virgin birth. It was no afterthought of God. God hints of the virgin birth clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he is announcing to Satan his curse. He said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, that eventually would be Mary, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Everything you do against this one to come will be like nipping in his kneel, heel, but you, are, your head is going to be crushed eventually. Now, this was part of the curse that came because of Satan, the tempter, uh, telling lies, which is foreign language, which is his true language, his native language, to Adam and Eve in the garden. The interesting thing about this verse is, now, I, quote, I, I read to you out of the New International Version. Sometimes our current versions are not the best versions. NIV is what I use most of the time. It's what most of us use all the time. But this is the best translation, I think, because of this reason. When you see the word offspring there, your offspring, in the Hebrew language, it's what the King James says, your seed, your seed. It's the only time in all the scriptures where your seed is in reference to a woman and her offspring. Every other time, it's about a man's seed but not here. It's showing, it's announcing something special, something unique about this woman's seed. Isaiah 7.14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now the opponents of the virgin birth will look at this Hebrew word for virgin, which is Alma, and say it also can mean uh, a young girl, which is true. It can also mean young girl. 
But if that's true, what kind of sign would that be? There would be lots of young girls that are having babies at the same time Jesus was born. There would be nothing unique about that. A sign is something that gets your attention. It is something like a construction sign that says, be careful how you're driving, or a wet paint sign that's saying, don't sit here. A sign is telling, it's getting our attention. Matthew 1.23 interprets Isaiah 7.14. It says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Greek word is parthenos, therefore virgin. It can only mean a person who has practiced sexual abstinence. That Matthew text tells us exactly what Isaiah the prophet was saying in 714. Jesus Christ was born free of any human agency. He was born, and it was all God's doing. On Christmas Day this year, as all previous years and years to come until the Lord comes back, we are celebrating the infinite that became finite the immortal that became mortal, the omnipotent that became impotent, the creator of the universe who became a single cell, the weakest and smallest form of life in the universe. The ideal became real, the supernatural became natural, the metaphysical became physical, the invulnerable became vulnerable, the unassailable Holy became huggable. The impossible became possible. John Phillips writes, The great mystery of the manger is that God is able to translate deity into humanity without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. The way God's true son was indeed marvelous. What child is this? He is marvelous in how he came. He is also God's true son, and he is majestic in who he is. There are more than 250 different names, metaphors, words that, that tell of Jesus in the Scripture. In our text in Isaiah 9 today, there is a package of four that are found only here in the Scripture. We know them well. Let's review them. He is wonderful counselor. That is, he is the source of wisdom for our lives. So unlike the world that we live in that is always pawing after more understanding and to make wise decisions, and yet we see the world around us floundering left and right, making all kinds of ridiculous summations of what would be best for the world. The Christmas message is that the world's wisdom has failed. There is no hope there. We have three children. When we were raising them, there were bad days. I want you to know they were not holy kids. <laughs> they fought. They argued. And if I was around, I'd have to say, Stop it or share. Say you're sorry. Quit arguing. Do I have to come in there? 
and usually I did. And when I went in there, things changed. They got silent, and better behavior followed. God looked at his world, and he saw all kinds of destruction and rowdiness, people fighting, wars in the world, a world filled with shame and wrong and sin. And God had to come down. He had spoken before. He had spoken through patriarchs. He had spoken through people like Moses announcing his plan and the judges and the period of kings. He spoke to people in the period of the prophets that accompanied kings. He spoke through John the Baptist. He spoke through angels. But the Hebrew writer says that at the, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And Jesus was born. He was born to us to be the mouthpiece of God. He came into our world to silence us. I love that other Christmas hymn that begins, we rarely sing it, let all mortal flesh keep silent. And we ponder the brilliance of God as he put on flesh and came as our wonderful counselor, bringing us wisdom for life. He's also the mighty God. The Hebrew word is gibaur. It means hero or champion. He came facing overwhelming odds. He came to save us and to rescue us. Colossians 2.9 says, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is, everything about Father, Son, Holy Spirit can be, can be seen and welcomed and, and, and learned in the person of Jesus. There is no need for any other person to reveal us as to who God is. God put on flesh, on flesh in Bethlehem. We call it the incarnation. Do you remember the first time you heard the word incarnation? I was young. I first thought they said tarnation, incarnation. I remember cartoon characters talking about tarnation. And then I thought, well, mom uses carnation, instant milk, so maybe incarnation is something weird done to carnation milk. Now, incarnation, carne, flesh, carnivorous animals are flesh-eating animals. God took on flesh. God has always been, the Son has always been, the Spirit has always been. That's a mystery to us that these three personalities are separate personalities, that, that they're one. They're one in essence, they're one in being, they're one in nature, they're one in purpose, they're one in mind. They're one in zeal. They're one. They're not each one-third God. Jesus isn't a chip off the old block. He is all God. The Son has always been, but in Bethlehem, God put on flesh, and he showed his mightiness, 
as he began his ministry at age 30 and began, began performing miracles. And as he performed his miracles, he was not only showing how mighty he is and demonstrating his credentials that he is indeed God, but he was giving us a preview of coming attractions when in the new heaven and the new earth, all would be, all would be a place of healing because of God, the mighty God, doing something at the end of the age. But he primarily showed us how mighty he was when he died and when he rose from the dead on the third day. What a mighty God. He is also everlasting father. He's not a demigod. He's not a second-class God. He is God himself. He's our knight in shining armor, our, our champion, our hero. That is also our father. Now, maybe you had a father that was remote or distant. Maybe you had a dad that never said, I love you. For some children who grow up without a dad, it's hard for them to understand and relate to God as father. But it's a beautiful term for Jesus Christ because it speaks about family. It suggests intimacy, a relationship. A number of things make our, dis our faith, our Christian faith, distinct from all other religions of the world. But one is this. The Bible is the only place in all religious literature where you can relate to God as a child relates to his, to his parent, to his father. It's the only place. It's so grand of truth that only in our faith are we welcome to address God, our Father, as Abba, Daddy. Now, I went to undergraduate college and got my degree. I went to graduate school and got my master's, and I learned about God a lot in those years. I'm thankful for them. But five minutes after having my first child, I learned more about God as Father than all those classes combined. When that first child was born, I wept. When all three of my kids were born, I mean, I was moved again, as many of you were when you had your children. Now, my kids through the years <clears throat> have caused me anxiety. Late nights, wondering when they're going to come through the door. You've been there, right? Uh, they have caused me uh, disappointment sometimes, right? Right? cost me a lot of money, too. <laughs> but I'm crazy about them. Do you know that's how God sees you today? As your father? Please know that. You have caused him anxiety, as I have. I have caused him a great deal of disappointment in my life. And I have cost him Supremely. 
And even today, as I disappoint him, he's still crazy about me. Please know that today. He's our everlasting father. And at Christmas, we love family gatherings. But maybe you don't have that. Maybe you have this dysfunctional family, and you hope you can just get through it without saying something that's going to cause more problems in your family, right? Even if you don't, God says to you, you know, come on in. Be in my family. And let me love you in a way nobody else ever has. That's how wonderful he is. He's also Prince of Peace, not in the way we think about peace. We get our Christmas cards, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We sing it in our carols. But it's so much more. We want to reduce it to a, a kind of inner peace, which is part of the Christian faith enjoyment, right? We have this inner peace, and we praise God for that. But this word, again, we've talked about it many times, is shalom, which means a, a life flourishing in all its dimensions, economically, physically, spiritually, it's flourishing through and through in every aspect of my being. It, it, it speaks to wholeness in life and in, it, in its totality. That's what this is all about. It's when you can say of your life in any dimension, all is well. That's why he came, that we could have that. Now, do we have that today? No, because we're in a fallen world. But that's God's desire for us. That's why Jesus welcoming into our lives is so grand because in spite of the world's conditions and its pain and our limitations and all that we deal with, ultimately, we are heading toward perfect shalom. That was redundant. Shalom, where there is full wholeness in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're headed for. Now, in 1865, there was another Christmas carol uh, poetry that is written by William Wadsworth Longfellow. He, he was living at a time, of course, in the midst of the Civil War, and his, he, he had gone through a couple of hard times. It was like one tragedy. His wife died in a fire. She had a candle, and she was home, and somehow her clothing caught fire, and she was burned to death, and he lost his home. At the same time, his son was serving in the military in the Civil War, and he was uh, tragically injured as well and affected the rest of his life. And Longfellow was writing these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There's no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. And mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Is that your life, perhaps? You know, there are a lot of people who experience Christmas season that way. They're in despair. They're penniless. Maybe they have no heat in their home today. They're worried about their children. They're worried about food. <laughs> they're worried how they're going to get through this celebratory season with some semblance of order in their life and keep it all together in their lives. You may have some really deep things burdening you today. We all have our burdens at different levels and degrees, and they, they weigh us down. Wadsworth, uh, I mean, Longfellow was like that as well. And then he wrote, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, 
God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He landed firmly and squarely. And I trust you will as well if you are suffering this season. He is majestic in who he is. And what child is this? He is. He is the true son of God. I want you to understand that today. He's un- he is the true son of God. And he is mighty in what he will do. He's mighty in what he will do. Verse 7 says that the government will be on his shoulders There are all kinds of governments in the world, of course. There are many many nations there are in the world. There are many nations in the past that have risen and fallen regarding their influence in the world. Just a, a quick scan of biblical history plays that out. In the Scripture, we read of time when all kinds of foreign nations were strong. In Isaiah's day, there's a threat of the Assyrian Empire, and indeed, the Assyrians are becoming the the powerhouse of Isaiah's day. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, but in time, the Babylonians are going to raise up, and they're going to wipe out the southern kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to take control of the world. But following him is going to be the the Medo-Persian Empire that follows. And they were a kinder people, kinder nation to God's people, Israel. Let Let them go back home. Their kings let them go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. You remember that? Then the Greek Empire comes along, led by Alexander the Great, that conquers the known world. The Greek culture spread everywhere. Then the Romans came up, developed their road system, and the source, uh, the beginning of, of all kinds of things in the world that we experience now because of their influence. That's been the story of mankind. That's where it is. And governments fall because of egocentrism, kings and rulers, or ethnocentrism, that we are the best, we're the nation that's the best. And man has made a mess of governments in the world. But under Messiah's reign, the entire world is impacted. And there's a future reign coming when God's judgment will fall and only those who remain in life everlasting will be those who have chosen to live under the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ, the true king, the true governor who is worthy to govern our lives. Now, it's amazing to me that even in a world where most reject him, nevertheless, his very entrance in the world has impacted all places in the world. That's even with the rejection of him. Consider the Messiah's government and what even Christian influence already has done. God's kingdom, the Messiah's government, has affected the role of women. Before Jesus' day, women were treated harshly and subserviently, were were thought to be nothing. A Jew would get up in the morning, thank you, God, that I wasn't born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. They were nothing. They were, the the Greek philosopher uh, Cicero likened women to slaves, dogs, horses, and donkeys. They were all possessions simply to be discarded. But when Jesus came, he conversed with women. He stunned people by the way he treated them and dealt with them. He raised them up to a new sense of value. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letters, said, In Christ, 
there is no male or female. He wasn't talking about no difference in gender. Of course, there's difference in gender. Of course, there are different roles. All he was speaking to was that the intrinsic worth of persons, equal male and female. Under Messiah's government, the civil government has been impacted. Prior to Christian influence, people often lived in perpetual fear of massacres or living under tyrants. After Jesus Christ, the biblical role of civil government began to emerge through the Magna Carta, through British common law, through republican governments and democratic principles, and human rights were introduced to the governments of the world. Under the Christian influence, education has been impacted. We would have lost most of the great literature of Greece and Rome, as well as other ancient civilizations, if it were not for Christian monks in those early centuries of the church who preserved that knowledge through the finding, preserving, and copying of ancient writings in the Middle Ages. The first universities in Paris and London were started by believers in Jesus because they had a thirst for more knowledge and wisdom and understanding. The printing of the Gutenberg Bible has been named by Time magazine the most important event in the last 500 years in the history of the world. It made truth and knowledge available to the masses. The first 120 colleges and universities that were planted in America began for the purpose of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of the impact the believing generation has made in business. For thousands of years, there was no middle class because there was no freedom no encouragement of individual initiative. It wasn't there. But Europe was Christianized, and biblical ideals and value of personhood, freedom of personhood, influenced labor and industry, and free enterprise grew, and poverty was lessened because people recognized their giftedness, and they exercised that giftedness, and, the, and, and, and society improved. Christianity has impacted science from Galileo to Faraday, from Pascal to Einstein. Many scientists have been, have been people of faith who use their trust in God to reveal the mysteries of creation. Think of the arts. Prior to Jesus' birth, did you know that most music was written in the minor chord? Because minor chords represent incompleteness and a lack of harmony in life. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there was wholeness as a possibility in life and major chords. Music was, was, was uh, uh, written based on major chords and more realistic art was painted. Wasn't it interesting? Da Vinci's masterpiece of Jesus sold for $450 million a couple of years ago. Even though to us Jesus is priceless, how wonderful the world took note of this. More hymns and songs have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person in the history of the world. But perhaps he hasn't impacted us in his reign more than the area of love. His greatest mark on the world is his love for the world. 
Because what, it, what happens is when people align their lives with him, they reflect his love in the world. Now, he showed it horrifically by his suffering on the cross to show us how much God loves the world. He provided a way out of our guilt and our self-destruction. But for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus, those who have come under his reign and lived under his governing authority, have displayed his love. The majority of hospitals and other ministries of compassion have been launched in Jesus' name. Wherever there has been disaster or hardship, famine, wars in the world, people filled with the love of God have gone there to relieve, to alleviate human suffering. You see, this is what has already happened for 2,000 years by the influence of the birth of Jesus, the King of Kings. And the more people are brought under his government that's on his shoulders, the better the world becomes. And so we are people of this king, of this reign. A future is coming when all other kingdoms will fall and only one government will last. And that will be that government of perfect shalom. These are the things that happen among people for the world when we live under the shouldered government of Jesus Christ. This is what a mighty God's government does. Where would you be without the reign of King Jesus today? Where would you be if you were your own government today? That's the problem with mankind, you know. That's the problem. We all want our own governments. We all want life as we think it should be. There is no life like the life provided under the reign of King Jesus. And that's why we exist to love all people to new life in Jesus Christ because there is no reign like his reign. Under his reign, our lives are restored to working order and will reach their zenith when he comes again in power and glory and majesty. This is Jesus, God's true son, and he will reign forever and ever. Our Father in heaven, thank you for calling us to yourself and making it possible through King Jesus. I pray this season, Father, we will not separate his birth from his death and burial and resurrection and his reign today. He is Lord of all, and I pray we live in such a way until he comes. Through his name we pray, amen.